The Person of Christ, Part 1, by B.B. Warfield. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Method of the Article It is the purpose of this article to make as clear as possible the conception of the person of Christ in the technical sense of that term, which lies on, or if we prefer to say so, beneath the pages of the New Testament. Were it its purpose to trace out the process by which this great mystery has been revealed to men, a beginning would need to be taken from the intimations as to the nature of the person of the Messiah in Old Testament prophecy, and an attempt would require to be made to discriminate the exact contribution of each organ of revelation to our knowledge. And were there added to this a desire to ascertain the progress of the apprehension of this mystery by men, there would be demanded a further inquiry into the exact degree of understanding which was brought to the truth revealed at each stage of its revelation. The magnitudes with which such investigations deal, however, are very minute, and the profit to be derived from them is not, in a case like the present, very great. It is, of course, of importance to know how the person of the Messiah was represented in the predictions of the Old Testament, and it is a matter at least of interest to note, for example, the difficulty experienced by our Lord's immediate disciples in comprehending all that was involved in his manifestation. But, after all, the constitution of our Lord's person is a matter of revelation, not of human thought, and it is preeminently a revelation of the New Testament, not of the Old Testament. And the New Testament is all the product of a single movement at a single stage of its development and therefore presents in its fundamental teaching a common character. The whole of the New Testament was written within the limits of about half a century, or, if we accept the writings of John, within the narrow bounds of a couple of decades, and the entire body of writings which enter into it are so much of a piece that it may be plausibly represented that they all bear the stamp of a single mind. In its fundamental teaching, the New Testament lends itself, therefore, more readily to what is called dogmatic than to what is called genetic treatment, and we shall penetrate most surely into its essential meaning if we take our start from its clearest and fullest statements, and permit their light to be thrown upon its more incidental allusions. This is peculiarly the case with such a matter as the person of Christ, which is dealt with chiefly incidentally as a thing already understood by all and needing only to be alluded to rather than formally expounded. That we may interpret these allusions aright, it is requisite that we should recover from the first the common conception which underlies them all. The Teaching of Paul 1. General Drift of Passage We begin then with the most didactic of the New Testament writers, the Apostle Paul, and with one of the passages in which he most fully intimates his conception of the person of his Lord, Philippians 2, 5-9. Even here, however, Paul is not formally expounding the doctrine of the person of Christ. He is only alluding to certain facts concerning his person and action, perfectly well known to his readers, in order that he may give point to an adduction of Christ's example. He is exhorting his readers to unselfishness, such unselfishness as esteems others better than ourselves, and looks not only on our own things, but also on those of others. Precisely this unselfishness, he declares, was exemplified by our Lord. He did not look upon his own things, but the things of others, that is to say, he did not stand upon his rights, but was willing to forego all that he might justly have claimed for himself for the good of others. For, says Paul, though, as we all know, in his intrinsic nature he was nothing other than God, yet he did not, 
as we all know right well, look greedily on his condition of equality with God, but made no account of himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, humbled himself, becoming obedient up to death itself, and that the death of the cross. The statement is thrown into historical form. It tells the story of Christ's life on earth. But it presents his life on earth as a life in all its elements alien to his intrinsic nature and assumed only in the performance of an unselfish purpose. On earth, he lived as a man and subjected himself to the common lot of men. But he was not by nature a man, nor was he in his own nature subject to the fortunes of human life. By nature he was God, and he would have naturally lived as became God, on an equality with God. He became man by a voluntary act, taking no account of himself, and having become man, he voluntarily lived out his human life under the conditions which the fulfilment of his unselfish purpose imposed upon him. 2. Our Lord's intrinsic deity. The terms in which these great affirmations are made deserve the most careful attention. The language in which our Lord's intrinsic deity is expressed, for example, is probably as strong as any that could be devised. Paul does not simply say he was God. He says he was in the form of God, employing a turn of speech which throws emphasis upon our Lord's possession of the specific quality of God. Form is a term which expresses the sum of those characterizing qualities which make a thing the precise thing that it is. Thus, the form of a sword, in this case mostly matters of external configuration, is all that makes a given piece of metal specifically a sword rather than, say, a spade. And the form of God is the sum of the characteristics which make the being we call God specifically God, rather than some other being, an angel, say, or a man. When our Lord is said to be in the form of God, therefore, he is declared in the most express manner possible to be all that God is, to possess the whole fullness of attributes which make God God. Paul chooses this manner of expressing himself here instinctively, because in adducing our Lord as our example of self-abnegation, his mind is naturally resting not on the bare fact that he is God, but on the richness and fullness of his being as God. He was all this, yet he did not look on his own things, but on those of others. It should be carefully observed also that in making this great affirmation concerning our Lord, Paul does not throw it distinctively into the past as if he were describing a mode of being formerly our Lord's. Indeed, but no longer his because of the action by which he became our example of unselfishness. Our Lord, he says, being, existing, subsisting in the form of God as it is variously rendered. The rendering proposed by revised version, margin, being originally, while right in substance, is somewhat misleading. The verb employed means strictly to be beforehand, to be already so-and-so, and intimates the existing circumstances, disposition of mind, or, as here, mode of subsistence in which the action to be described takes place. It contains no intimation, however, of the cessation of these circumstances, or disposition, or mode of subsistence, and that the less in a case like the present, where it is cast in a tense, the imperfect, which in no way suggests that the mode of subsistence intimated came to an end in the action described by the succeeding verb. Compare the parallels, Luke 16, 14, 23, 23, 50, Acts 2, 30, 3, 2, 2 Corinthians 8, 17, 
12.16, Galatians 1.14. Paul is not telling us here, then, what our Lord was once, but rather what he already was, or better, what in his intrinsic nature he is. He is not describing a past mode of existence of our Lord, before the action he is adducing as an example took place, although the mode of existence he describes was our Lord's mode of existence before this action, so much as painting in the background, upon which the action adduced may be thrown up into prominence. He is telling us who and what he is who did these things for us, that we may appreciate how great the things he did for us are. 3. No exinination. And here it is important to observe that the whole of the action adduced is thrown up thus against this background, not only its negative description to the effect that our Lord, although all that God is, did not look greedily on his consequent being on an equality with God, but its positive description as well, introduced by the but, and that in both of its elements, not merely to that effect. Verse 7, that he took no account of himself, rendered not badly by the authorised version, he made himself of no reputation, but quite misleading by the revised version, he emptied himself. But equally, that to the effect, verse 8, that he humbled himself. It is the whole of what our Lord is described as doing in verses 6 to 8, that he is described as doing despite his subsistence in the form of God. So far is Paul from intimating, therefore, that our Lord laid aside his deity in entering upon his life on earth, that he rather asserts that he retained his deity throughout his life on earth, and in the whole course of his humiliation up to death itself, was consciously ever exercising self-abnegation, living a life which did not by nature belong to him, which stood in fact in direct contradiction to the life which was naturally his. It is this underlying implication which determines the whole choice of the language in which our Lord's earthly life is described. It is because it is kept in mind that he still was in the form of God, that is, that he still had in possession all that body of characterizing qualities by which God is made God, for example, that he is said to have been made not man, but in the likeness of man, to have been found not man, but in fashion as a man, and that the wonder of his servanthood and obedience, the mark of servanthood, is thought of as so great. Though he was truly man, he was much more than man, and Paul would not have his readers imagine that he had become merely man. In other words, Paul does not teach that our Lord was once God, but had become instead man. He teaches that though he was God, he had become also man. An impression that Paul means to imply that in entering upon his earthly life our Lord had laid aside his deity may be created by a very prevalent misinterpretation of the central clause of his statement, a misinterpretation unfortunately given currency by the rendering of the ERV, counted it not a prize to be on an equality with God, but emptied himself, varied without improvement in the ARV to counted not the being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. The former negative member of this clause means just, he did not look greedily upon his being on an equality with God, did not set supreme store by it, see Lightfoot on the clause. The latter positive member of it, however, 
cannot mean in an antithesis to this that he therefore emptied himself, divested himself of this, his being on an equality with God, much less that he emptied himself, divested himself of his deity, form of God itself, of which his being on an equality with God is the manifested consequence. The verb here rendered emptied is in constant use in a metaphorical sense, so only in the New Testament, Romans 4.14, 1 Corinthians 1.17, 9.15, 2 Corinthians 9.3, and cannot here be taken literally. This is already apparent from the definition of the manner in which the emptying is said to have been accomplished, supplied by the modal clause which is at once attached, by taking the form of a servant. You cannot empty by taking, adding. It is equally apparent, however, from the strength of the emphasis which by its position is thrown upon the himself. We may speak of our Lord as emptying himself of something else, but scarcely with this strength of emphasis of his emptying himself of something else. This emphatic himself interposed between the preceding clause and the verb rendered emptied builds a barrier over which we cannot climb backward in search of that of which our Lord emptied himself. The whole thought is necessarily contained in the two words emptied himself, in which the word emptied must therefore be taken in a sense analogous to that which it bears in the other passages in the New Testament where it occurs. Paul, in a word, says here nothing more than that our Lord, who did not look with greedy eyes upon his estate of equality with God, emptied himself, if the language may be pardoned, of himself, that is to say, in precise accordance with the exhortation for the enhancement of which his example is adduced, that he did not look on his own things." He made no account of himself, we may fairly paraphrase the clause, and thus all question of what he emptied himself of falls away. What our Lord actually did, according to Paul, is expressed in the following clauses. Those now before us express more the moral character of his act. He took the form of a servant, and so was made in the likeness of men. But his doing this showed that he did not set overweening store by his state of equality with God, and did not account himself the sufficient object of all the efforts. He was not self-regarding, he had regards for others. Thus he becomes our supreme example of self-abnegating conduct. See also Kenosis. 4. Our Lord's Humanity the language in which the act by which our Lord showed that he was self-abnegating is described, requires to be taken in its complete meaning. He took the form of a servant being made in the likeness of men, says Paul. The term form here, of course, bears the same full meaning as in the preceding instance of its occurrence in the phrase, the form of God. It imparts the specific quality, the whole body of characteristics by which a servant is made what we know as a servant. Our Lord assumed then, according to Paul, not the mere state or condition or outward appearance of a servant, but the reality. He became an actual servant in the world. The act by which he did this is described as a taking, or as it has become customary from this description of it to phrase it, as an assumption. What is meant is that our Lord took up into his personality a human nature, and therefore it is immediately explained that he took the form of a servant by being made in the likeness of men. That the Apostle does not say, shortly, that he assumed a human nature is due to the engagement of his mind with the contrast which he wishes to bring out forcibly for the enhancement of his appeal to our Lord's example, between what our Lord is by nature and what he was willing to become, not looking on his own things but also on the things of others. 
This contrast is no doubt embodied in the simple opposition of God and man. It is much more pungently expressed in the qualificative terms, form of God and form of a servant. The Lord of the world became a servant in the world. He whose right it was to rule took obedience as his life characteristic. Naturally, therefore, Paul employs a word of quality rather than a word of mere nature, and then defines his meaning in this word of quality by a further exegetical clause. This further clause, being made in the likeness of men, does not throw doubt on the reality of the human nature that was assumed in contradiction to the emphasis on its reality in the phrase, the form of a servant. It, along with the succeeding clause, and being found in fashion as a man, owes its peculiar form, as has already been pointed out, to the vividness of the Apostle's consciousness that he is speaking of one who, though really man, possessing all that makes a man a man, is yet at the same time infinitely more than a man, no less than God himself in possession of all that makes God God. Christ Jesus is in his view, therefore, as in the view of his readers, for he is not instructing his readers here as to the nature of Christ's person, but reminding them of certain elements in it for the purposes of his exhortation, both God and man, God who has assumed man into personal union with himself, and has in this his assumed manhood lived out a human life on earth. The elements of Paul's conception of the person of Christ are brought before us in this suggestive passage with unwanted fullness, but they all receive endless illustration from his occasional allusions to them, one or another, throughout his epistles. The leading motive of this passage, for example, reappears quite perfectly in 2 Corinthians 8-9, where we are exhorted to imitate the graciousness of our Lord Jesus Christ, who became, for our sakes, emphatic, poor, he who was, again, an imperfect participle and therefore without suggestion of the cessation of the condition described, rich, that we might by his very emphatic poverty be made rich. Here the change in our Lord's condition at a point of time perfectly understood between the writer and his readers is adverted to and assigned to its motive, but no further definition is given of the nature of either condition referred to. We are brought closer to the precise nature of the act by which the change was wrought by such a passage as Galatians 4.4. We read that, When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem them that were under the law. The whole transaction is referred to the Father in fulfillment of his eternal plan of redemption and is described specifically as an incarnation. The Son of God is born of a woman. He who is in his own nature the Son of God, abiding with God, is sent forth from God in such a manner as to be born a human being, subject to law. The primary implications are that this was not the beginning of his being, but that before this he was neither a man nor subject to law. But there is no suggestion that on becoming man and subject to law, he ceased to be the Son of God or lost anything intimated by that high designation. The uniqueness of his relation to God as his Son is emphasized in a kindred passage, Romans 8.3, by the heightening of the designation to that of God's own Son, and his distinction from other men is intimated in the same passage by the declaration that God sent him, not in sinful flesh, but only in the likeness of sinful flesh. The reality of our Lord's flesh is not thrown into doubt by this turn of speech, but his freedom from the sin which is associated with flesh as it exists in lost humanity is asserted. Compare 2 Corinthians 5.21. Though true man, therefore, 1 Corinthians 15.21, Romans 5.21, Acts 17.31, 
He is not without differences from other men, and these differences do not concern merely the condition as sinful in which men presently find themselves, but also their very origin. They are from below, he is from above. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven, 1 Corinthians 15.47. This is his peculiarity. He was born of a woman like other men, yet he descended from heaven, compare Ephesians 4.9, John 3.13. It was not meant, of course, that already in heaven he was a man. What is meant is that even though man, he derives his origin in an exceptional sense from heaven. Paul describes what he was in heaven, but not alone in heaven, that is to say, before he was sent into the likeness of sinful flesh, though not alone before this, in the great terms of God's Son, God's own Son, the form of God, or yet again in words whose import cannot be mistaken, God over all, Romans 9.5. In the last cited passage, together with its parallel earlier in the same epistle, Romans 1.3, the two sides or elements of our Lord's person are brought into collocation after a fashion that can leave no doubt of Paul's conception of his twofold nature. In the earlier of these passages, he tells us that Jesus Christ was born, indeed, of the seed of David according to the flesh, that is, so far as the human side of his being is concerned, but was powerfully marked out as the Son of God according to the spirit of holiness, that is, with respect to his higher nature, by the resurrection of the dead, which, in a true sense, began in his own rising from the dead. In the later of them, he tells us that Christ sprang indeed as concerns the flesh, that is, on the human side of his being, from Israel, but that, despite this earthly origin of his human nature, he yet is and abides, present participle, nothing less than the supreme God, God over all, emphatic, blessed forever. Thus Paul teaches us that by his coming forth from God to be born of woman, our Lord, assuming a human nature to himself, has, while remaining the supreme God, become also true and perfect man. Accordingly, in a context in which the resources of language are strained to the utmost to make the exaltation of our Lord's being clear, in which he is described as the image of the invisible God, whose being antedates all that is created, in whom, through whom, and to whom all things have been created, and in whom they all subsist, we are told not only that, naturally, in him all the fullness dwells, Colossians 1.19, but with complete explication that all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily, Colossians 2.9, that is to say, the very deity of God, that which makes God God, in all its completeness has its permanent home in our Lord, and that in a bodily fashion, that is, it is in him clothed with a body. He who looks upon Jesus Christ sees, no doubt, a body and a man, but as he sees the man clothed with the body, so he sees God himself, in all the fullness of his deity clothed with the humanity. Jesus Christ is therefore God manifested in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3.16, and his appearance on earth is an epiphany, 2 Timothy 1.10, which is the technical term for manifestations on earth of a God. Though truly man, he is nevertheless also our great God, Titus 2.13. Teaching of the Epistle to the Hebrews The conception of the person of Christ, which underlies and finds expression in the Epistle to the Hebrews, is indistinguishable from that which governs all the allusions to our Lord in the Epistles of Paul. To the author of this Epistle, our Lord is above all else the Son of God in the most eminent sense of that word, and it is the divine dignity and majesty belonging to him from his very nature which forms the fundamental feature of the image of Christ which stands before his mind. And yet, it is this author who, perhaps above all others of the New Testament writers, emphasizes the truth of the humanity of Christ, and dwells with most particularity upon the elements of his human nature and experience. 1. Background of Express Deity 
the great Christological passage which fills chapter 2 of the epistle to the Hebrews rivals in its richness and fullness of detail and its breadth of implication that of Philippians 2. It is thrown up against the background of the remarkable exposition of the divine dignity of the Son which occupies chapter 1. Notice the therefore of 2.1. There the Son had been declared to be the effulgence of His, God's, glory, and the very image of his substance, through whom the universe has been created, and by the word of whose power all things are held in being, and his exaltation above the angels, by means of whom the old covenant had been inaugurated, is measured by the difference between the designations ministering spirits, proper to the one, and the Son of God, nay God himself, one, eight, and nine, proper to the other. The purpose of the succeeding statement is to enhance in the thought of the Jewish readers of the epistle the value of the salvation wrought by this divine Saviour by removing from their minds the offence they were in danger of taking at his lowly life and shameful death on earth. This earthly humiliation finds its abundant justification, we are told, in the greatness of the end which it sought and attained. By it our Lord has, with his strong feet, broken out a pathway along which, in him, sinful man may at length climb up to the high destiny which was promised him when he was declared he should have dominion over all creation. Jesus Christ stooped only to conquer, and he stooped to conquer not for himself, for he was in his own person no less than God, but for us. 2. Completeness of Humanity the language in which the humiliation of the Son of God is, in the first instance, described is derived from the context. The establishment of his divine majesty in chapter 1 had taken the form of an exposition of his infinite exaltation above the angels, the highest of all creatures. His humiliation is described here, therefore, as being made a little lower than the angels, 2.9. What is meant is simply that he became man. The phraseology is derived from Psalm 8, authorized version, from which had just been cited the declaration that God had made man, despite his insignificance, but a little lower than the angels, thus crowning him with glory and honour. The adoption of the language of the psalm to describe our Lord's humiliation has the secondary effect, accordingly, of greatly enlarging the reader's sense of the immensity of the humiliation of the Son of God in becoming man. He descended an infinite distance to reach man's highest conceivable exaltation. As, however, the primary purpose of the adoption of the language is merely to declare that the Son of God became man, so it is shortly afterwards explained, 2.14, as an entering into participation in the blood and flesh which are common to men. Since then, the children are sharers in flesh and blood, he also himself in like manner partook of the same. The voluntariness, the reality, the completeness of the assumption of humanity by the Son of God are all here emphasised. The proximate end of our Lord's assumption of humanity is declared to be that he might die. He was made a little lower than the angels because of the suffering of death, 2.9. He took part in flesh and blood in order that through death, 2.14. The Son of God as such could not die. To him belongs by nature an indissoluble life, 7.16 margin. If he was to die, therefore, he must take to himself another nature to which the experience of death were not impossible, 2.17. Of course, it is not meant that death was desired by him for its own sake. The purpose of our passage is to save its Jewish readers from the offence of the death of Christ. What they are bidden to observe is, therefore, Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that by the grace of God the bitterness of death which he tasted might redound to the benefit of every man. 2.9 
and the argument is immediately pressed home that it was eminently suitable for God Almighty, in bringing many sons into glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect as a saviour by means of suffering. The meaning is that it was only through suffering that these men, being sinners, could be brought into glory. And therefore, in the plainer statement of verse 14, we read that our Lord took part in flesh and blood in order that through death he might bring to naught him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver all them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And in the still plainer statement of verse 17, that the ultimate object of his assimilation to men was that he might make propitiation for the sins of the people. It is for the salvation of sinners that our Lord has come into the world. But as that salvation can be wrought only by suffering and death, the proximate end of his assumption of humanity remains that he might die. Whatever is more than this gathers around this. The completeness of our Lord's assumption of humanity and of his identification of himself with it receives strong emphasis in this passage. He took part in the flesh and blood, which is the common heritage of men, after the same fashion that other men participate in it, 2.14, and having thus become a man among men, he shared with other men the ordinary circumstances and fortunes of life, in all things, 2.17. The stress is laid on trials, sufferings, death, but this is due to the actual course in which his life ran, and that it might run in which he became man, and is not exclusively of other human experiences. What is intended is that he became truly a man and lived a truly human life, subject to all the experiences natural to a man in the particular circumstances in which he lived. 3. Continued Possession of Deity It is not implied, however, that during this human life, the days of his flesh, 5-7, he had ceased to be God, or to have at his disposal the attributes which belonged to him as God. That is already excluded by the representations of chapter 1. The glory of this dispensation consists precisely in the bringing of its revelations directly by the divine Son, rather than by mere prophets. 1, 1. And it was as the effulgence of God's glory and the express image of his substance, upholding the universe by the word of his power, that the Son made purification for sins. 1, 3. Indeed, we are expressly told that even in the days of the flesh he continued still a son, 5.8, and that it was precisely in this that the wonder lay, that though he was and remained, imperfect participle, a son, he yet learned the obedience he had set himself to, compare Philippians 2.8, by the things which he suffered. Similarly, we are told not only that, though an Israelite of the tribe of Judah, he possessed the power of an indissoluble life, 716 margin, but describing that higher nature which gave him this power as an eternal spirit, compare spirit of holiness, Romans 1.4, that it was through this eternal spirit that he could offer himself without blemish to God, a real and sufficing sacrifice in contrast with the shadows of the old covenant, 9.14. Though a man, therefore, and truly man, sprung out of Judah, 7.14, touched with the feeling of human infirmities, 4.15, and tempted like as we are, he was not altogether like other men. For one thing, he was without sin, 4.15.7.26, and in this characteristic, he was, in every sense of the words, separated from sinners. Despite the completeness of his identification with men, he remained, therefore, even in the days of his flesh, different from them and above them. Teaching of Other Epistles it is only as we carry this conception of the person of our Lord with us, the conception of him as at once our supreme Lord, to whom our adoration is due, and our fellow in the experiences of a human life, that unity is induced in the multiform allusions to him throughout, 
whether the epistles of Paul or the epistle to the Hebrews or indeed the other epistolary literature of the New Testament. For in this matter there is no difference between those and these. There are no doubt a few passages of these other letters, in which a plurality of the elements of the person of Christ are brought together and given detailed mention. In 1 Peter 3.18, for instance, the two constitutive elements of his person are spoken of in the contrast, familiar from Paul, of the flesh and the spirit. But ordinarily, we meet only with references to this or that element separately. Elsewhere, our Lord is spoken of as having lived out his life as a man, but everywhere also he is spoken of with the supreme reverence which is due to God alone, and the very name of God is not withheld from him. In 1 Peter 1.11, his pre-existence is taken for granted. In James 2.1, he is identified with the Shekinah, the manifested Jehovah, our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. In Jude verse 4, he is our only master, despot, and lord. Over and over again, he is the divine Lord who is Jehovah. For example, 1 Peter 2, 3.13, 2 Peter 3, 2.18. In 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, he is roundly called our God and Saviour. There is nowhere formal inculcation of the entire doctrine of the person of Christ, but everywhere its elements, now one and now another, are presupposed as the common property of writer and readers. It is only in the epistles of John that this easy and unstudied presupposition of them gives way to pointed insistence upon them. The Teaching of John In the circumstances in which he wrote, John found it necessary to insist upon the elements of the person of our Lord, his true deity, his true humanity, and the unity of his person, in a manner which is more didactic in form than anything we find in the other writings of the New Testament. The great depository of his teaching on the subject is, of course, the prologue to his gospel. But it is not merely in this prologue, nor in the gospel, to which it forms a fitting introduction, that these didactic statements are found. The full emphasis of John's witness to the twofold nature of the Lord is brought out, indeed, only by combining what he says in the gospel and in the epistles. In the gospel, remarks Westcott, on John 20.31, the evangelist shows step by step that the historical Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, opposed to mere flesh. In the epistle, he affirms that the Christ, the Son of God, was true man, opposed to mere spirit, 1 John 4, 2. What John is concerned to show throughout is that it was the true God, 1 John 5, 20, who was made flesh, John 1, 14, and that this only God, John 1, 18, revised version margin, God only begotten, has truly come in flesh, 1 John 4, 2. In all the universe, there is no other being of whom it can be said that he is God come in flesh, compare 2 John verse 7, he that cometh in the flesh, whose characteristic this is. And of all the marvels which have ever occurred in the marvellous history of the universe, this is the greatest, that what was from the beginning, 1 John 2, 13 and 14, has been heard and gazed upon, seen and handled by men, 1 John 1, 1. From the point of view from which we now approach it, the prologue to the Gospel of John may be said to fall into three parts. In the first of these, the nature of the being who became incarnate in the person we know as Jesus Christ is described. In the second, the general nature of the act we call the incarnation, and in the third, the nature of the incarnated person. See Johannine Theology 3, John Gospel of 4, 1, 3, 2. 1. The being who was incarnated. John here calls the person who became incarnate by a name peculiar to himself in the New Testament, the Logos or Word. According to the predicates which he here applies to him, he can mean by the Word nothing else but God himself, considered in his creative, operative, self-revealing and communicating character, 
the sum total of what is divine. C. F. Schmidt. In three crisp sentences he declares at the outset his eternal subsistence, his eternal intercommunion with God, his eternal identity with God. In the beginning the Word was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, at the point of time when things first began to be, Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, the Word already was. He antedates the beginning of all things. And he not merely antedates them, but it is immediately added that he is himself the creator of all that is. All things were made by him, and apart from him was not made one thing that hath been made. One three. Thus he is taken out of the category of creatures altogether. Accordingly, what is said of him is not that he was the first of existences to come into being, that in the beginning he already had come into being, but that in the beginning when things began to come into being he already was. It is express eternity of being that is asserted. The imperfect tense of the original suggests in this relation, as far as human language can do so, the notion of absolute supratemporal existence, Westcott. This, his eternal subsistence, was not, however, in isolation. And the word was with God. The language is pregnant. It is not merely coexistence with God that is asserted, as of two beings standing side by side, united in a local relation, or even in a common conception. What is suggested is an active relation of intercourse, the distinct personality of the word is therefore not obscurely intimated. From all eternity the word has been with God as a fellow. He who in the very beginning already was, was also in communion with God. Though he was thus in some sense a second along with God, he was nevertheless not a separate being from God, and the word was, still the eternal was, God. In some sense distinguishable from God, he was in an equally true sense identical with God. There is but one eternal God, this eternal God the Word is, in whatever sense we may distinguish him from the God whom he is with. He is yet not another than this God, but himself is this God. The predicate God occupies the position of emphasis in this great declaration, and is so placed in the sentence as to be thrown up in sharp contrast with the phrase with God, as if to prevent inadequate inferences as to the nature of the Word being drawn even momentarily from that phrase. John would have us realize that what the word was in eternity was not merely God's co-eternal fellow, but the eternal God's self. 2. The Incarnation Now John tells us that it was this word, eternal in his subsistence, God's eternal fellow, the eternal God's self, that, as come in the flesh, was Jesus Christ. 1 John 4.2 And the word became flesh. John 1.14, he says, the terms he employs here are not terms of substance, but of personality. The meaning is not that the substance of God was transmuted into that substance which we call flesh. The word is a personal name of the eternal God. Flesh is an appropriate designation of humanity in its entirety, with the implications of dependence and weakness. The meaning then is simply that he who had just been described as the eternal God became, by a voluntary act in time, a man. The exact nature of the act by which he became man lies outside the statement. It was matter of common knowledge between the writer and the reader. The language employed intimates merely that it was a definite act, and that it involved a change in the life history of the eternal God. He had designated the word. The whole emphasis falls on the nature of this change in his life history. He became flesh. That is to say, he entered upon a mode of existence in which the experiences that belong to human beings would also be his. The dependence, the weakness, which constitutes the very idea of flesh, in contrast with God, would now enter into his personal experience. 
It is precisely because there are the connotations of the term flesh that John chooses that term here, instead of the more simply denotative term man. What he means is merely that the eternal God became man, but he elects to say this in the language which throws best up to view what it is to become man. The contrast between the word as the eternal God and the human nature which he assumed as flesh is the hinge of the statement. Had the evangelist said, as he does in 1 John 4 2, that the word came in flesh, it would have been the continuity through the change which would have been most emphasized. When he says rather that the word became flesh, while the continuity of the personal subject is of course intimated, it is the reality and the completeness of the humanity assumed which is made most prominent. 3. The Incarnated Person that in becoming flesh the word did not cease to be what he was before entering upon this new sphere of experiences, the evangelist does not leave, however, to mere suggestion. The glory of the word was so far from quenched, in his view, by his becoming flesh, that he gives us at once to understand that it was rather as trailing clouds of glory that he came. And the word became flesh, he says, and immediately adds, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. One fourteen. The language is coloured by reminiscences from the tabernacle, in which the glory of God, the Shekinah, dwelt. The flesh of our Lord became, on its assumption by the word, the temple of God on earth, compare John 2.19, and the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. John tells us expressly, that this glory was visible, that it was precisely what was appropriate to the Son of God as such. And we beheld his glory, he says, not divined it or inferred it, but perceived it. It was open to sight, and the actual object of observation. Jesus Christ was obviously more than man. He was obviously God. His actually observed glory, John tells us further, was a glory as of the only begotten from the Father. It was unique. Nothing like it was ever seen in another and its uniqueness consisted precisely in its consonance with what the unique Son of God, sent forth from the Father, would naturally have. Men recognized and could not but recognize in Jesus Christ the unique Son of God. When this unique Son of God is further described as full of grace and truth, the elements of his manifested glory are not to be supposed to be exhausted by this description, compared to 11. Certain items of it only are singled out for particular mention. The visible glory of the incarnated word was such a glory as the unique Son of God, sent forth from the Father, who was full of grace and truth, would naturally manifest. That nothing should be lacking to the declaration of the continuity of all that belongs to the word as such into this new sphere of existence and its full manifestation through the veil of his flesh, John adds at the close of his exposition the remarkable sentence, As for God, no one has even yet seen him, God only begotten, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. 118 margin. It is the incarnate word, which is here called only begotten God. The absence of the article, with this designation, is doubtless due to its parallelism with the word God, which stands at the head of the corresponding clause. The effect of its absence is to throw up into emphasis the quality, rather than the mere individuality of the person so designated. The adjective only begotten conveys the idea not of derivation and subordination, but of uniqueness and consubstantiality. Jesus is all that God is, and he alone is this. Of this only begotten God, it is now declared that he is, not was. The state is not one which has been left behind at the incarnation, but one which continues uninterrupted and unmodified into, not merely in, the bosom of the Father. That is to say, he continues in the most intimate and complete communion with the Father. 
though now incarnate he is still with God in the full sense of the external relation intimated in 1.1. This being true, he has much more than seen God and is fully able to interpret God to men, though no one has ever yet seen God, yet he who has seen Jesus Christ, God only begotten, has seen the Father. Compare 14.9.12.45. In this remarkable sentence there is asserted in the most direct manner the full deity of the incarnate word and the continuity of his life as such in his incarnate life. Thus he is fitted to be the absolute revelation of God to man. End of the Person of Christ, Part 1, by B.B. B. Warfield